You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. The spies had reported back on their mission to Jericho and that vast company of over 2 million people crossed the river on dry ground as they set foot on the promised land for the very first time. And all that lay before them, and this is where they needed to take another huge, great gulp, all that lay before them were the fortified cities and the angry armed people of the cities of Canaan. All of a sudden, there was something very, very attractive about wandering in the desert. When confronted with the walled city of Jericho, where we read in chapter 6, verse 1, the gates were securely shut. Let me leave this question hanging over the rest of what we're going to be thinking about today. Are you content with where you're at in your journey with the Lord? Or are you prepared to move on in faith? Are you content where you're at in your journey with the Lord? Or are you prepared to move on in faith? That's the kind of question that must have been rumbling around the Israelite camp towards the end of chapter 5, mustn't it? But just as those doubts begin to rise and surface, Joshua is met by the Lord in his warrior power, commander of the angel armies, which opens up this big question for us today. Whose battle is it anyway? Whose battle is it anyway? Turn with me to the end of chapter 5, the first few verses that David read for us earlier. Joshua is looking up towards Jericho, we read in verse 13. His eyes are filled with this fortress-like structure ahead of him. His heart is sinking within him. But instead of his eyes being filled with fear, he is confronted with a heavenly figure. We read of a man standing in front of him. Now, this man is God in human form. How do we know this? Well, it's not just an angel, because if it had been an angel, the angel would have told him not to worship me, because angels would have known you only worship the Lord your God and him alone. So whenever he bows down, if this had been an angel, he said, you can't do that. I'm only an angel. This must have been God who received the worship of Joshua. This must be God come down. So here we see the warrior God with sword in hand, the divine commander, who puts walled cities and Canaanite fighters into the bigger perspective. And as Joshua sees his Lord ready for battle, he asks a really unusual question. Look at verse 13, really unusual. Joshua asks God, are you for us or for our enemies? To which he receives an even more curious answer. The God of angel armies in verse 14 says, neither. Now let's pause for a moment here. I wonder, does that answer jar with you as a Christian today? Surely we would expect God, the Lord, the Savior, to reply to Joshua, Joshua, I'm on your side. What a dumb question to ask, Joshua. Haven't you seen my work in the wonders of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan. Uh, What kind of question is that, Joshua? But no, this heavenly commander says that he is only about the work of the Lord. God's work is his primary concern. So what's the whole point of this little conversation? Is the Lord with Joshua or not? Or a better way of asking it would be, whose battle is it anyway? Is the battle with Jericho Joshua's fight 
Or is it God's fight? Whose battle is it? You see, it was not for Joshua to claim that God was on his side, but rather for God to enlist Joshua in his battle. I want you to really think hard about this today. For so often in Northern Ireland, we use phrases like, I've invited Jesus into my heart. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's nowhere in the Bible, friends. Rather, God in his grace invites us into his great plan of redemption. He does the inviting to share in the battle that he has already won. You see, we've got it all mixed up. We've got it all the way around as if we can box God up, that we can squeeze him into our lives. And that's why so few of us have confidence and strength in our Christian faith, because we've squeezed him in as opposed to seeing our lives being fitted into his glorious purposes for the world. You see, what these verses remind us is that Joshua was to follow the commander of the Lord in his cause rather than the other way around. And it's a trap that all of us as Christians face. I've done it. You've done it. I reckon all of us have done it. We have this tendency to think that the outreach we do or the organization we're involved in in church, that it's the best. It's the most effective. It's the thing that everyone should be interested in. Everyone should be getting on board with what I'm doing, we're doing, how we're thinking. And why don't others jump on board? Why doesn't God pour out his tremendous blessing on us? See, that comes all about us. It's all about my thing, your thing, our thing, as opposed to, is it God's thing? We can be terribly proud of our programs and performances and then claim him as our own. We organize it all and say, Lord, now will you bless us? We get it the whole wrong way round. And as a result, it can appear that the God we speak of takes sides. He's only likely to bless us and help us and lead us and guard us and guide people like us if we're doing things right. But let me tell you, God is in no man or woman's pocket. How we need to know that and see that, God owes us absolutely nothing. Too many of us have got all boxed up that he should bless us because we've got it all sorted. A Bible-believing family. Oh, he must bless us. If there's trouble in our family, that's... But, uh, why has that happened? We've, we're committed servants, Lord. Our ways are best. Our theology is sound. We've followed you for years, etc., etc., and we expect him to do it for us. We talk more about the Lord being with us than us seeking to follow him. We prefer him as a cozy little comfort blanket rather than the great commander-in-chief with a huge sword at his side. How we be little God by the way we live our Christian lives. And so what is the right response to God? The enemies we face, the problems that loom large, the sins that we battle, the walls that seem insurmountable, whatever they might be, are not overcome by our determination, our goodness, our strength, our character, our Christian lives. No, the only way we can manage the mountain of life's mayhem is when we meet God, is when we have, are confronted rather by God. Whenever we bow low and recognize our absolute brokenness and weakness and our utter dependence upon him. Not, Lord, look at all I'm doing for you. But that moment when we fall on our faces and say, Lord, look at everything you've done for me. Seeing his glorious beauty 
that would dare come down in his mercy and meet with people like us. Reminding us, speaking to us, letting us see that he is the God with the sword, the God with the army that goes into battle. And he doesn't need us. As David has just said with the boys and girls, he didn't need the Israelites to win that victory against Jericho. But rather he invites us in to be part of that. Whenever we look up like Joshua did, he saw Jericho and his heart sank until God came into view. And God filled his mind. And God arrested his heart. And God led him in worship. Folks, we need to fill our eyes and our minds and our hearts with the worship of this living warrior God who draws alongside. And we need to remind ourselves that the Lord fights for us. His sovereign rule is over us. His loving concern is for us. The greatest battle that he's already won has already been won for us. The beauty of the cross, the joy of the empty tomb. And I can assure you in so doing, whatever else is filling our lives won't disappear. But it will fall into perspective. Let's meet with Jesus and fall on our knees before the commander of the Lord's army, and in seeing his power, and in knowing his victory, experience that touch from heaven, and words of glory, get up and get on. Which leads secondly on to strange instructions that lead to victory. Strange instructions that lead to victory. Basically, that could be anywhere in chapter 6, couldn't it? One of the things we notice in Joshua 6 is how much of the chapter is given over to an almost tedious repetition of instruction. You see what it says in those early verses, really, from verse 2 on? On the first day, do this, says God. On the second day, do the same. On the third day, same again. Fourth, more of the same. Fifth, yep, do it again. Sixth, do it again, Joshua. Then on the seventh, do what you've already done, only do it seven times. Do the shouting and the blasting and then watch the walls tumble. There's the armed guard leading the procession each day, followed by the seven priests with the, who were tooting the ram's horns. And then you've got the Ark of the Covenant carried on its poles. And then you've got this rear guard. And round and round they go. Nothing seemed more useless. Nothing seemed more pointless from a human point of view than high walls. They won't come down with the noise of trampling feet. Cities aren't won by trumpets. The armed men were to say nothing, remaining stoom. Look at verse 10. Walk in silence. The only sign was to be that of the ram's horns. And then in the seventh circuit, on the seventh day, Joshua commanded the people, verse 16, shout. That was the time to shout. And look at verse 20. The outcome was incredible. After all the circling, after the silence, after the blowing, the walls come down. Jericho was destroyed in accordance with God's clear, but these were really unusual commands, weren't they? This must have been an incredibly hard thing to maintain. Imagine trying to keep a crack group of soldiers quiet as they march around and their eyes are gazing upwards, especially when you know rightly, if you've ever watched any of those old films, you know, the, the, the guys over the walls, I'm sure, were shouting abuse at them. What are you doing? You're going to win by marching around? When are you going to actually have a go at us? Is this all you've got? You're going to win by marching? You carly bunch. Get back, you wandering misfits, and get away home again. And in fairness, I can only imagine what the Israelites were thinking as they engaged in this daily march. I suspect, to be honest, most of them were thinking as they circled around the city, we're stuffed. <laughs> What's this all about? All this marching and silence. 
taking abuse from the Canaanites. All we can do is trust in God's commands because I can't see where this is going to take us. In silence they marched, but they waited. Lord, we've been quiet. Lord, why don't you speak? Why don't you do something now, Lord? And speak he did. In such a mighty way, when the silence was shattered on day seven, though the method looked like absolute madness, they trusted in God's goodness. And it could never be said that Israel defeated Jericho. Rather, Israel prospered from the Lord's defeat of Jericho. How easy it is to think that God has forgotten us, though, isn't it? I'm sure you've been in that position like I have in the past. Whenever you are, I, I, you know, listen, good Christian people, of whom we've so many in Union Road, and you, you, you keep going about your lives seeking to, to do what's right before God. You know, but it almost feels like you're going round and round in circles. Every day you're, you're seeking to do what is best and what is right and, and give glory to God. And maybe in business doing all you can to abide by the rules, taking your finances and your taxes seriously. Maybe in your relationships and your integrity, sexual purity, you want to go God's way and do things right. For others, it could be working really hard for the boss who's really hard to like or giving your all for the company or doing an honest day's work. But in all of this, you're just kind of, it feels like you're just going round and round and round and round. And it feels like you're going nowhere, getting no encouragement, no help from anyone. And you're asking the question of, is it worth it? Because I know people who are, well, you know, they're, <laughs> I know what they're doing and they're getting away with it. And I know what they're like. And they, no one seems to be pulling them up on it. And, and they seem to be prospering. And I just seem to be going round and round. And you stop yourself and ask, is it worth it? Following instructions and commands of God that to the world's eyes just look stupid. In fact, how many people have walked past Union Road since we started the service and have probably looked in and thought, what a waste of time. Those agents in here, what a waste of a Sunday morning over a bank holiday weekend. What a waste of their time. But you know, in Hebrews 11, verse 30, it tells us, it was by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. What is it that honors God most? Is it sacrifice? Is it service? No. Is it victory? It's obedience. It's obedience. And even Jesus experienced that. I think we often forget that Jesus in his obedience is the example to us. What does it say in Philippians 2? That Jesus obeyed the strangest of all plans, that he would be obedient to death, even death on a cross. How very strange that the greatest means of bringing glory to God was through the death of his son on a cruel cross. But it was from that place of death, that place of strange, strange obedience, that Jesus was raised up. And Philippians 2 verse 9 continues, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Folks, let's follow the commands of our God quietly and submissively and expectantly, even if it feels like your life is just going round in circles. Because you know what? Even if you're obedient and it's going round and round, one day he will lift you from that place to that place. Because you've obeyed. You've obeyed the Lord, not just as Savior, but Lord over all of your life. 
albeit at times of seemingly repetitive, circular, round and round, day after day, but given time, watch him work as you follow in humble obedience. Here's a third thing that we can't overlook today in this passage. It's incredibly important that we get this. The third thing is the dilemma in the destruction. And I'm quite sure if you're a sensitive reader of Scripture, this will have jumped out at you again today because it's there all the way through the books of Joshua and some places in Judges and throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it was one of the questions that came in for our Q&A a few weeks ago about how God deals with some of these cities and these people in the Old Testament by just wiping them out. What's this mean? Well, whenever we read here in Joshua 6, verses 16 to 21, we read of God's command to wipe out the entire city of Jericho. And often we hear this kind of talk that surely this runs contrary to the spirit of Jesus. Surely the God we praise isn't harsh and abrasive. There must be some mistake, or maybe God is making some kind of moral progress himself from the Old Testament where he's maybe that big body and then he kind of becomes more like a, the goody in the New Testament. You know, maybe he improves himself over time, some people say. But in order to understand passages such as this, as Israel enters the promised land, we need to see where it all began. Some of you might need to do a bit of homework on this and look some of these verses up later. But it all begins in Genesis 15, verse 16. Genesis 15, verse 16, is probably the best place to start. It's there that we read that the Lord promised Abraham that his family would not inherit Canaan, that is the promised land, immediately, but would come back to it in the fourth generation. Why? Let me read it to you. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Did you hear that? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached it. The Amorites is another name for the Canaanites, the people of the, the promised land. The implication in Genesis 15 is that God is actually really patient. God is actually patient with sinners. That he gives them several generations, which in those days would have been hundreds of years, to turn from their sin. That God has given them literally almost half a millennia in order to repent of their sins, which is a long time. He doesn't wipe out sinners immediately, but always gives them ample opportunity to repent. But what God indicates here is that there would be a time when their sin does reach its limit and judgment will fall. That's the view if you read through Genesis to Deuteronomy. The Lord is intent on casting out the residents of Canaan because of their utterly gross sin. Now, we've got too many children in church today, and it'd be really wrong to outline in detail what these people were famous for. But if you were to pick up any ancient history book, and you were to read what the Canaanites and the people of Jericho were like, you would be utterly appalled. It was gross what they got up to, especially with their women and their children. If what they did as a nation then was to be repeated here and now, there'd be an international outcry right across the world. Who's going to deal with these people? Who's going to sort this nation? Who's going to topple their leaders, end the support, impose the strictest sanctions? The right-wing newspapers would carry headlines such as, Let Jericho rot in hell. They were so bad. It left to the other nations, Jericho would have been tumbled long ago because our lifestyle and our leadership was utterly sick and depraved and completely abhorrent and needed sorted. The atrocities and shameful acts of Canaan were so well recorded, it was only by God's grace that the likes of Jericho had been allowed to get on for so long. 
In fact, the better question for us today would be, wasn't why did God do that? But rather, why hadn't God done something about them sooner? Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 and 5 reads, it is because of their wickedness that the Lord is driving them out before you. You see, this isn't a vengeful God wiping out a bunch of cutesy, innocent, culturally sensitive people from lots of cosmopolitan cities. This is the God of justice reminding us that sin will never go unpunished. This will not answer all our dilemmas, I know that, but we are being asked to see it from the Old Testament point of view, not as an act of gross injustice on God's part, but as the highest and most patient form of justice shown by our God. Let's face it, none of us here likes the sudden death, to hear the sudden death of thousands of people. None of us claps our hands with glee when we hear that walls fall down and crush people. And yet the way we are created with the God-shaped hearts that we've been given, created in the image of God, does cry out, Lord, when will you bring justice to our world? When will you bring justice to the wicked, the evil men? When will they get comeuppance in this world and get what they deserve? And if that is us as broken sinners saying that, and rightly so, does God not have the greater right to bring justice because he is pure and holy and good? I think the simplest and most striking way of putting this is that we shudder in horror at the judgment of Jericho, knowing that that is what we deserve. That's what we deserve. And if we think that's harsh, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be maimed and sightless in heaven than have all your working faculties and be in hell. Jesus said that. This is a case of how do we deal with sin? But here we read that God is gracious and patient and slow to anger, but one day he will deal with sin. Here's the fourth thing, cursing in the reconstruction Towards the end of this chapter, there's a seemingly inconsequential verse, verse 26, that denounced anyone who might dare to rebuild Jericho. It's really important that we read it because it's easy to miss it. Look at verse 26. At that time, Joshua pronounced a solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild a city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Any builder, we read here, who takes on project restore Jericho, would do so at a cost, the cost of the death of two sons. Now, we might think this is just another example of the extremity of God, but this is the seriousness of Jericho's sin. Jericho had to be flattened so that the sin wouldn't resurface. This place was to be flattened so sin would not be returned to. And yet, as the history of Israel unfolds, it is with a bitter irony that one of our own kings reigning in the promised land, chooses to embark on rebuilding Jericho, which has been strictly forbidden in Joshua 6, verse 26. In 1 Kings 16, verse 34, you can check this out later, there was one king, Ahab, who decided to rebuild Jericho off his own accord. He told his defense department to give the contract to a man called Heel of Bethel, who began by repairing the foundations 
only to come home one night and find out that his first son, Abaram, had died. And as he hung the gates on the last day of the project before the scaffolding came down, his mobile phone went off and it was Mrs. Hale on the phone in tears in a terrible state informing him that his youngest son, Segub, had died in unforeseen circumstances. Suddenly, but not unexpectedly. Why? Because on Ahab's command, they had defied the word of God. We've already heard today that obedience looks very strange. But we see here what disobedience looks like. Let me say something really clear today. Disobedience always looks good. Disobedience looks grand. Disobedience looks like positive reconstruction. Disobedience looks like fun. Disobedience is the future, Ahab would have told them, as Ahab drives forward the Jericho project. But let me tell you very clearly today, friends, on the Comfort and Union Road, whoever's watching, disobedience kills. Disobedience kills. Was the rebuilt Jericho attractive? Oh, it was stunning. It was absolutely gorgeous. Yes, it was a monument to King Ahab's ingenuity and Hale's creative ability. It looked great. But follow me just a few miles down the road to two other monuments. And you see the gravestones of the final resting place of two young lads who died before their time, Ibarim and Segub, because their dad defied the word of God. And folks, there are times when we click on our phones or watch the TV news and it feels like Satan has come to camp on our doorstep. But instead of chasing him, most of us actually invited him in and said, come on into our living rooms. Come on into our bedrooms. Come on into our homes. Come on into our lives. And we invite him in because it looks good. Be warned. Defying God's word is deadly. But thank God it doesn't end there today. Here's the fifth and the last thing, but the most important thing. Salvation comes from the rubble. Salvation comes from the rubble. As we emerge from the ashes of Jericho, the death and destruction, the cursing and the judgment at the hands of God, what do we see? We see something stunningly beautiful. Look at verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And I think we need to get this, and even let the tears flow as you read this. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. I love that line. Amidst the carnage of God's wrath, a prostitute and her family are saved because as chapter 2 reminded us, she trusted the almighty saving power of God and hung out that scarlet cord dangling from her window, indicating her trust in God and towards his people. Rahab waited patiently for her salvation as those troops marched silently round the city walls day after day. She knew she was one day closer to her salvation. She knew that. You see, that scarlet cord of salvation is woven all the way through God's plans for his people. Our God, the Lord, punishes sin, yes, devastatingly so, but he's the savior towards his people. He's the savior of sinners. And this isn't the last we hear of Rahab. As David indicated with the boys and girls, if you turn to the very first page in the New Testament, she's there again. 
Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where we read, tucked away in the lineage of, Dave, of, of Jesus, easily missed, but unforgettably so, is Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who was the great-grandmother of King David and the great-great-grandmother, or whatever, of King Jesus. Not only was Rahab integrated amongst the children of Israel, she became part of the family of salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Rahab, the prostitute, became part of the family of salvation. Our God's grace is that big and goes that deep and reaches so far. A prostitute from Jericho, the place cursed by God, tumbled in judgment, finds life in the Savior. How we should be thankful for this woman of faith whose legacy leads us all the way to Jesus. Let me finish with a story to warm your hearts today. In the 18th century, there was a great evangelist in England known as George Whitfield. Some of you might have read of him. And on one particular occasion, he preached in the town of Rotherham in Yorkshire. But he was met in Rotherham with great hatred. Hang on with this story. It's worth listening to. In fact, he was held in such contempt that the public bars in Rotherham became stages for the local comedians to mock the Bible and especially Whitfield's preaching. You know, on TV and BBC, and they're mocked the week and all this. They gathered in Rotherham, and the whole idea was who could do the best impression of Whitfield to make everyone laugh. That was what they did. They gathered to mock Whitfield and the gospel of the Lord Jesus. At one of these pubs one weekend, a Mr. Throop and three of his friends entered into a bet. But like X Factor for comedians. Who was it who could do their best at impersonating Whitfield in that bar on that night? Whoever won that night would scoop all the money. So Throop's three friends took their turn. And one of them stood on the table, another stood in the bar, another in a bar stool, and tried to take the mick out of everything that George Whitfield was saying. Mr. Throop was the last one up. He was the most confident. And egged on by the growing audience, who were full of beer and rowdy spirits by this stage, he climbed onto the bar as a pulpit and exclaimed, I shall beat you all. He'd been practicing all week. I shall beat you all. A Bible was handed to him, and the whole place went, Whoa! You know, he was egged on as he got handed a Bible, and he opened the Bible randomly. At Luke chapter 13, verse 3, and he called out in Whitfield's voice, I don't know what Whitfield sounded like, but anyway, he called out in Whitfield's voice, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And as he read it and began to mock preach it, a deep conviction came over Throop's soul. And as he went on, he seemed to preach it with sincerity, with truth. And the crowd suddenly began to fall silent. And rather than being entertained, there was a, there was a holy hush. They wanted to hear what this meant. And somehow, God by his spirit used Throop's comic preaching to save others. And most of all, in the midst of his comedy sermon, Throop gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. He went on to be the pastor of a small village church in Maspera, near Rotherham, for over 13 years until his death. And so in Joshua chapter 6, the sinful prostitute Rahab finds herself 
also as a princess in the plans of God, from rubble to redemption. And if you're a believer here today, that is your story too. Is that incredible? That's your story and that's my story, from rubble to redemption from prostituting our affections to so many things, to selling ourselves out to the world and anything attractive in it. And yet we're so often left feeling empty and abused and used and confused, longing for someone who will truly love us in spite of who we know we are and our sinful nature. But it's only in the great warrior Lord that we can find safety in the rubble and redemption in the face of judgment, as we look to Christ, our warrior king, the warrior king who faced the battle, who took the curse upon himself, who entered death on Good Friday, and was given over to complete destruction as he was laid in that tomb, all for your sin and mine. This is our God the warrior king who has fought for us. All he asks today is, are you with me? Let's pray. Mm -hmm.